Hello, and welcome to Fatal Femmes, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will look at a movie or TV show written, directed, or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In this episode, we look at the 1962 movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, directed by Robert Aldrich, written by Lucas Heller, and based on the book by Henry Farrell, starring Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. To get us started, here is a synopsis. A former child star torments her paraplegic sister in their decaying Hollywood mansion. Trigger warnings for this episode are physical and mental abuse, alcoholism, and disturbing images. We do want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We get in-depth on the plot, so if you care about that, go and watch the movie and come back. We'll be waiting. We are here, live. Well, not live. We are alive. alive. We are live, and it's live now, but it won't be live by the time people are listening to this. Yeah, and it's going to be an interesting episode because we have a guest who is not recording with Lacey and I. I will be recording with her separately and putting the episode together. So, hello, Sarah. Yes, hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for being a guest. Um, yeah, I can't wait to hear your opinions and thoughts about this crazy ride of a movie. And so we're going to drop it into history there for a moment. And this movie came out in 1962, which is the year that John Glenn was the first American to orbit the Earth. Dr. No opened in theaters and one of my favorite plays, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, premiered on Broadway. James Meredith was the first black man to attend the University of Mississippi. Marilyn Monroe was found dead at her home from an overdose. The Cuban Missile Crisis happened. Strangers on the Shore by Mr. Acker Bilk was the number one song, and the number one movie of that year was Lawrence of Arabia, you know, which I, I just know. saw for the first time. Oh, yeah, I've never seen that. And I don't know that I've heard the song Stranger on the Shore or heard of Acker Bilk. I don't think I have either. So, yeah, I guess this is where you can insert Sarah telling us a little bit about herself. I'm Sarah, and uh, I've just been a film nerd forever. I went to film school and graduated in 2014. And since then, I've been a videographer for a music school in Austin, and I've been a film critic for a while. I've covered Fantastic Fest here in Austin two years in a row. I was supposed to do South by this year, but, you know, Corona. Wow, all of that was really interesting. So cool to learn more about you, Sarah. That seems totally natural, right? Yeah. Also, they can't see you, but you're doing this weird, like, thumbs up, head bopping thing. It's really like, great. Hi, my name's Lacey, and I want to sell you a car. You look like a real person right now. I I feel like a real person. Let me tell you what. I think I am on officially on week three of quarantine. I think a little bit more. It's not affecting me at all. I don't relate to any character in this movie, and none of the proceedings of this movie will ever happen in my house. Well, there are three people that live in your house. And And we have no stairs. Yeah, that's true. There are stairs near you, though. Yeah, we're stairs adjacent. But I'm curious, how did you come across this movie? This was one of those movies that I'd always heard about. I guess it was maybe like eight or nine years ago. I just was like, hey, let me watch this movie that people talk a lot about. And after I watched it, I was like, I understand why people talk a lot about this movie. Yeah, I couldn't remember exactly the year that I saw it, but I know I saw it because you watched it, which is a common theme in my life. Laura sees a movie, tells me to watch it, and I do it. So that's no different for this story and thought it was brilliant. Kind of loved the backstory. I think that's kind of what got me interested in it initially because I was obsessed with um, old Hollywood starlets when I was a teenager. So I would read a lot of backstory biographies and one that I read was Mommy Dearest and learning a little bit more about Joan Crawford 
and learning about the feud between her and Betty Davis. So I think that's initially what kind of struck my fancy was just kind of getting to witness that play out on screen. But the movie itself is it's legendary. I don't think something like this can ever be created again because of the unique circumstances, because of the actors. I think it's one of those just perfect storms that is forever encapsulated on film. And then um, with Baby Jane, or whatever happened to Baby Jane, I found it in college. I actually had a book that was like the 500 cult films you must see before you die. And um, that and that one was just in it. And I worked at a media library at the time. So I just checked it out. I don't even know how to describe the movie to people because the genre is just so of its own. Like it's kind of a gothic and kind of a psychological thriller and kind of a horror and just campy as all get out. And I don't know, there's just nothing really like it. Even though there are other films of that kind of hag horror genre, this really does does stand out on its own. Had you heard about this movie before you saw it? Like, was it on your radar or something? Like, ah, I need to watch that one day? Yeah, like I said, I read a lot of biographies of Hollywood stars when I was um, in my teens. So I knew that it existed. I knew it was a big deal. I read Betty Davis's biography a few years back. I can't remember if that was before or after I saw Baby Jane. Yeah, I knew about it. It was just one of those that, because DVDs of these movies weren't, very easy to come by when we were younger. It was one that I knew about and was interested in and then kind of forgot about and then it came back to me later on in life. So a lot happens in this movie, like a lot. But we're going to try to break it down a little bit. It starts off black with a child crying and then this weird scene for some reason of a little girl looking at a jack-in-the-box and crying and the guy's like it shouldn't scare you and then the jack-in-the-box has tears rolling down its face I didn't really get that symbolism yeah I'm not sure there either except I know something's there I'm aware it means something but I'm not quite sure what it means so maybe sarah will have some insight on that um because i completely forgot about that or i didn't notice that because i watched the movie pretty recently to kind of refresh and i don't remember that but what i would guess is that it you know it's this thing that's supposed to be innocent and entertaining like it's almost like a court gesture and it's supposed to like bring joy to people but it's scary it kind of freaks you out and then you realize that it's also sad and so it's kind of like baby jane like she's trying so hard to entertain people and delight people and bring joy to people, but they're all freaked out because she's kind of scary now. And then deep down, she's just so miserable and just wants that love and attention again. I really love that. And that also is really, really sad. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just like the tears of the clown, basically. And then behind it, you see on the marquee, Baby Jane Hudson. We go inside the theater and we see them performing. It's Baby Jane Hudson and her dad, and they ask for a last request from the audience, and a little boy yells out, I've written a letter to Daddy. So she sings the song, I've written a letter to Daddy, and then her Which dad- Which is just super creepy on its own. It's really sad. Oh, and this is in 1917. Yeah, I like to think that this scene um, serves as the prologue to- the movie it's giving you the backstory and setting up the relationships of the characters so in this early scene we see baby jane as she was as a child star blonde adorable beloved and people are just obsessed with her kind of along the lines of like a shirley temple and yeah her dad is milking it he reminds me of the dad or i guess he wasn't the dad but the doctor that had the quintuplets what were they what was their name do you remember the quintuplets i the five don't little identical girls and they would 
basically have them as a zoo exhibit and people could come in and look at them playing. Yeah, I remember um, because that was really big when we were small and they made a TV movie about them. But I I I don't remember their name. And you could buy the little dolls. Yeah, I had the paper dolls, I think. I don't know if I still do. But yeah, that the dad in this, Baby Jane's dad, reminds me of that doctor figure in that film or of that story. And he is in this just as much as she is. He's a showman because he comes out and dances with her. And so it's very clearly Jane and her dad and Blanche, Jane's sister, and their mom. It's like baby Jane and the dad really are bonded and identify with each other and are peas in a pod and then vice versa with Blanche and her mom. And while baby Jane and the dad are performing, you see Blanche and her mom just off stage looking very... I don't even know what the term would be, but they don't look happy. It's not, they're not mad, but they're just kind of resigned. But there's more to it than just that. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's a very complex emotion. Yeah, they don't like what's happening. And so we see baby Jane and the family coming out of the stage door after the show, and all these people gathered around with their kids, And Jane throws a giant temper tantrum because she doesn't want to go take a nap. And she tells her dad, I make the money. I can do what I want. I wrote the note. I was like, she's not wrong. The moms are like, oh, I always blame the parents when kids are like that. You hear, you know, like the mutterings of the crowd. And And then the dad's like trying to save face. Jane was hollering for an ice cream. He goes, okay, well, maybe you do need that. And she's like, and one for Blanche, which I really don't understand why she's doing that because it doesn't feel like she's trying to be nice. It feels like she's almost teasing Blanche in a way. I'm not sure. Like bringing her into the circus, if you will. And Blanche is like, oh, I don't want any. And then the dad gets mad at Blanche for not wanting an ice cream cone. He's like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to make her look like? It's a really toxic environment. Oh, yeah. See, to me, and granted, everybody's interpretation, I felt like she actually was being nice to Blanche, but it's like an afterthought. Like, oh, yeah, and because I I feel like they do love each other in this really awful way. Yeah, like they're definitely connected and they care about each other. I don't know even if care is the right word, but they're, they're connected. Yeah, but it wasn't like... There is love. Yeah, in, in whatever toxic way they have it. I guess I was more thinking about the way she said it. Because it almost sounded... Taunting? Know, just, yeah, that's what it sounded like to me. Like, in one for Blanche. We can't forget Blanche or something. I can't re- remember how she said it. I feel like it was also kind of a saving face thing. Like, okay, she got what she wanted. And so now if she's nice again... Her fans will forget that she had been bad. I don't know. Maybe we're reading too much into this scene, but. No, we're not. I don't think we are. I don't think she was trying to save face because I don't think she could have given a shit who was watching because she clearly just had a huge meltdown in front of them. It was maybe it was like she had that power over the dad. So she was just seeing how far she could go with it. I want this and one for her, too. I'm not sure. Yeah, the dad yells at Blanche, and so Blanche runs off, and she's crying, and the mom tells her, one day it will be your turn, and please remember to be kinder to your father and Jane than they were to you. And Blanche goes, oh, I'll remember. I'll remember all right. Yeah. I'm like, oh, God. 
I don't know if I want you to remember. Yeah, yeah. Please, please don't be nice to me. Yeah, well, I was kind of like the mom. I was thinking in the mom's perspective, she's like, oh, maybe don't remember now that I see how you're taking it. But yeah, so that's the opening scene. And then we go to 1935. And we are in a Hollywood screening room where there are two Hollywood executives watching some film with a very um, young, but now older, baby Jane in a screening for a film she is in. And you can kind of tell by their facial expressions that they are not happy with the quality of the film. And I wrote it down what what movie they pulled footage from. It is Betty Davis, but it's a very young Betty Davis. So that's kind of interesting that they went and pulled old footage of her to reuse as baby Jane. They had said they had to go way back to find any footage of her that wasn't great. But she told them that they could use any of her early movies that she wasn't good in any of them. That sounds like Betty Davis. But they said they had a hard time finding any suitable footage showing her as a bad actor. They did. Or I guess as not as Betty Davis caliber acting. But they found something where maybe she wasn't the best and used it in this scene and so you can just tell by the looks on these guys faces that they aren't happy with her performance at all yeah and they're having this discussion about when blanche signed her contract they had to make one picture for every blanche hudson picture so they were making one for one but they were saying that blanche was the biggest star in hollywood that she got script approval that she was making more money than she knew what to do with that she had more power than any other actress yeah and i think when you said one for one basically if they got one blanche hudson movie they had to do one baby jane or a jane hudson movie at this point yes but they also talk about how jane is notoriously horrible to work with she is always drunk showing up late and just terribly unprofessional yeah and they're leaning against this car this like massive expensive car and the one guy goes what do they make monsters like this for and the other guy goes for Blanche Hudson and the camera pulls away and you see that that's her personal parking space. Yeah, and I it just came to me and I realized something. So Blanche put in the contract that Jane had to get a film as well. And that almost harkens back to the ice cream thing. It was like Jane got an ice cream, so Blanche got an ice cream. Blanche gets a movie, Jane gets a movie. Which she didn't have to do. She could have like said in her contract, oh, you have to make some movies with my sister but not that for every one I make you have to make one so that that was pretty generous of her definitely seems like she took the advice of her mother and so next we see this car that we've been introduced to pulling up outside the gates of this house oh we also found out that Blanche had just bought this big house but it's going to take her a year to get it ready for them to move into The car pulls up to the gates of this house and you see somebody in this beautiful outfit get out. You just see their feet. We don't see any faces. They're opening the gates and the person who's still in the car puts the car into gear and drives it into the gates and smashes the gates. Yeah, and both people are obviously wearing women's clothing. So it's assumed right away that one is Blanche and one is Jane. You just at this point don't know which is which. And so this is what we see the credits play over. And on the ground next to the car is a smashed baby Jane doll. I found it telling that the head was smashed on the baby Jane doll. Which we didn't talk about the baby Jane dolls in the beginning that they were selling out 
outside of the theater. When the guests would walk out of the show in the lobby, they were selling these life-size Baby Jane Hudson dolls for $3.25, which I can only imagine what that was in 1917, but it was probably a very large amount of money. That equals $72 in today's money. Oh my gosh. So it'd be like getting your kid an American Girl doll. Yeah, basically. I don't know how much American Girl dolls cost anymore. By the way, this is a tangent. This is off subject. But did you know there's an American Girl uh, store and restaurant in Dallas and Houston? No, I didn't. There is. And guess where Carl's going to take me? Because I I was like, oh, if we ever have kids, we're going to take them to the American Girl doll store. I was like, wait, I'm not waiting for kids. I want to go. They may not even like dolls. So I'm going to make Carl take me to American Girl dolls and we're going to have lunch in the restaurant. Yes. I've been seeing how in 20 years there's going to be the COVID-19 quarantine American Girl doll who Quarantina. has yeah, with a <laughs> Nintendo Switch and a little loaf of bread that she learned how to bake and a Netflix account. And she has a little mask and a ruler to keep herself six feet away from other people. Oh my gosh, yes. Then from there, we get to see what life is like now. They're playing Blanche's old movies on TV. The neighbors next door have been living there for six months, and they've never seen Blanche come out. But the mom is telling the story about when she first saw this movie, and the daughter's watching it, and they're talking about just how wonderful Blanche is. And Blanche is also watching the movie. Yeah, and I found it interesting that we first are introduced to this present day. It says yesterday, by the way, which I thought, I don't know why it said yesterday, because the movie goes much farther. But it says yesterday at the beginning. Interesting, I missed that. Yeah, also, we or are no- I made that up. I, do- I didn't see that. I just saw 1935. So yeah, we've jumped from 1917 to 1935 and then what are we present day maybe yeah present day or maybe that's why it said yesterday so 62 maybe i don't know um but yeah we're we're introduced to this time period through the neighbor at first because the neighbor pulls up sees the house sees the bars on the window because i know i didn't notice that before when i watched it but there are bars on the window on the upper story windows not on the lower story windows right so that's kind of telling or kind of gets you feeling out what life might be like there you're introduced to who blanche was and you find out what happened to her through the conversations of the neighbors the mom and the daughter which the daughter is played by betty davis's real life daughter did you know that i thought that was really cool which they didn't get along jay joan crawford and betty davis had horrible relationships with most of their children joan crawford had better relationships with her younger kids but um her two oldest it was awful and then betty davis's daughter and her didn't get along either no not at all but they got along well enough that she was in this movie betty davis also had a really odd relationship with her sister i think that's why this movie worked is because they were playing off real life when she was young betty davis was burned really bad in a fire and her mom spent hours and hours like rubbing her skin with stuff to make sure that she didn't scar and she didn't and she was always the favorite she did take care of her sister but they always had a very contentious relationship and i think that there was a time where they didn't speak and Mm -hmm. it's been a while since i read her biography but yeah now that I'm thinking about that there's a lot of similarities in this yeah real life is definitely playing into what we're seeing 
in this made-up world. Kind of reminds me of why Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the film, worked so well with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor because it was so close to reality. But anywho, so we're introduced to the present through these conversations and we find out that Blanche was the one that was hit by the car, that everyone suspects that Jane did it. Blanche has been left in a wheelchair. But yeah, so she's watching the film too and kind of reliving and she's going, oh, I wish she had held that scene longer. But still, it's a pretty good picture. So she's kind of reliving that too. Jane comes in to bring Blanche her lunch. We learn that Blanche is completely dependent on Jane. She lives on the upper story, so she doesn't ever leave it. And Jane has to bring her all her food. She's got this little like buzzer thing if she needs something that she can call for. But basically her domain is pretty much her room. And you can tell... Right away, Jane is very resentful of having to be Blanche's caretaker, but she's still doing it. Like, she doesn't leave. Because she comes in and she turns the TV off and Blanche says, oh, I was watching that. And she just kind of smirks and walks out of the room and shuts the door on her. So we see, you know, it's a really great house. We also see right away that Jane is drinking. I think this is, too, the first time we hear Jane impersonate Blanche because she's mocking something that Blanche said, and she says it back to her in a perfect impersonation. Yes, she can do her voice exactly. Which is actually, in real life, it wasn't Betty Davis. It was Joan Crawford dubbed over Betty Davis. That's very clear in that scene. Later on, they get it where it looks a little bit more streamlined, like you can't tell, but in that one, you definitely can tell that it's not her. That's one of the times in the movie when I think um, Betty Davis is scariest is when she gets that really creepy look on her face when she's impersonating Blanche. It's just scary. I can't put my finger on why it's scary, but she gets her eyes really wide and has this kind of manic smile. It's like she's almost has to get in that place of just like manic happiness to impersonate her sister because that's how she thinks of her. It's interesting to me, but I really like it how much the neighbor lady is and isn't in the movie. I also love that the lady's name is Mrs. Bates. Yes. So she brings some flowers over to give to Blanche and she tells Jane, you know, we just enjoyed the movie so much and we'd really love to meet her and and Jane is just rude and she tells her that her sister doesn't meet anybody. She dumps the flowers in the sink. Yeah, and you can tell that there's kind of going to there's this resurgence in the love of Blanche Hudson within the media because they're re-airing all of these old movies and people are kind of remembering their youth and it's very nostalgic and so there's kind of this resurgence of love for her and I think that triggers some of Jane too and her behavior towards Blanche. But the biggest thing is we learn through a conversation that Blanche has with their maid Elvira who is played by a really great actress named Maddie Norman. Elvira and Blanche are talking about the decision that Blanche has made to sell the house. And Elvira is strongly encouraging Blanche to have Jane committed to an asylum because she is deteriorating mentally, she's getting worse, and Blanche is fully in denial about it. She's like, oh, I don't know. She's been better. And just making excuse after excuse for Jane's behavior. While we're talking about Maddie Norman, let's talk about her for a minute because she was, she was so fantastic in this movie. The character of Elvira is so pivotal. It's a character that the audience as a viewer has a lot of hope riding on because she's she's the voice of reason and all of this madness. 
I just know that the whole time, because even though I've seen the movie, I know how it ends. There's always that part of me that's like, I want Elmira to save her. I want her and Blanche to go off and just, like, they, they just take care of each other and just be happy and safe away from Jane's craziness. And she's the only person from the outside gets into the house. She's the voice of reason to these two people that clearly are not being reasonable. Blanche isn't either. Maddie Norman, she made her film debut in 1947 in a movie called The Peanut Man, and she found it really hard because of the limited roles that she was allowed to play, that it, she was mainly maids and domestics, and I looked at her IMDb and pretty much Every character, at least in the beginning, is like Lucy the maid, the maid, the servant. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it was just such a, a strong role too. Kind of like I feel like this this movie was just a game changer for the two like main leads, but also just for a woman of color. You know, in the early sixties, like it was just a good film opportunity. Basically, roles for women of color, in particularly black women in Hollywood typically were domestic help. But it said that she did play the roles, but she refused to play them in a stereotypical manner or a subservient manner. You can definitely see that in the movie, like when she stands up to Jane and she's trying to take the door off. But she said, in the beginning, I made a pledge that I would play no role that deprived black women of their dignity. Hell yeah. And stand a legend. She was in a movie that I actually got to see for the first time at Noir City last year called The Well, which is really good. And I didn't, know who she was i want to see that because you have been talking about that and it sounds so good to go on my list it was really good but yeah um she talks about this movie in particular that even in the book the way the character is written it has it kind of downplays her intelligence and the way that she speaks is very um what's the word she called it old slavery time talk Okay, I thought that there was an actual term for it, but yeah, it was very much in that style. Like, you think of Mammy and Gone with the Wind, kind of like that. And she refused to play the character like that and completely rewrote the role for herself, speaking as herself. She was also a college lecturer on African-American literature and theater, and she taught at the University of Texas at Tyler. Uh, Oh my gosh, that's so cool. She was an artist in residence at Stanford University, and in 19... 1970, she created and taught a course in African-American theater history at UCLA. Yeah, so she was doing the work. She was doing a lot of work, and we probably owe a lot to her that we don't even know about. But specifically in this film, as we go on, the way her character, she plays her character, and the actions the character takes were huge in the 60s because it completely changed the, the, the conversation around race stereotypes because she challenged so many stereotypes and so many archetypes within this movie with her performance. And it's a small role. It's a, it is a supporting role. She makes so many strides in such a short amount of time. She's a great actor. It's a great character. And I would venture to say the character is great because of the choices she made. It sounds like if they had have cast somebody different, it would have been a completely different part. As a viewer, you find yourself siding with Elvira because she is looking at the situation as as an observer. She's not in it, but she's seeing what's going on, and she has pri- she's privy to the inner workings of it. So she understands it better than anybody else, and she is really doing the most, trying to convince Blanche 
to commit Jane. So yeah, so Blanche and Elvira are talking about this and going back and forth and Blanche is being very stubborn. Jane is suspecting that this is what Blanche is going to do because unbeknownst to Blanche, Jane knows. Jane reads all her mail, listens to all of her phone conversations, and for some reason Blanche doesn't know any of this. But she decides to tell Jane that she's going to sell the house, except she doesn't tell her that she's going to sell it. She keeps saying, oh, we're having money problems. Oh, they said that we should sell it. And Jane is like, no, there's been no letter. No, nobody called you and said we should sell it. You decided to sell it. Jane's treatment of Blanche descends starting there. Like it starts getting worse right then and there. The phone that Blanche has in her room is removed, further cutting her off because basically the window and the TV and the phone are the only things connecting her and Elvira. Jane slowly starts taking those things away. Blanche has this bird. Jane takes the cage down to clean it. And when she brings it back, she goes, oh, the bird got away. He flew out a window. Offers no explanation beyond that. And it's just like, sorry. And then later this bird ends up as Blanche's lunch. That scene is so awful because that was her one little friend in that room besides Elvira. That was like her constant little companion. Jane killed it and put it on a platter. Well, and then from this point on is when Jane starts taking food away from her. She's like, you didn't finish your din-din. <laughs> She's very childish. Or you didn't eat your din-din. Because she uses yeah. words like din-din and things like that. And you constantly see Jane going between being an adult and then being a child and then this weird hybrid of the two. Well, because if you look at the, the action she takes and how she's behaving towards Blanche when she finds out Blanche is doing something she doesn't want her to do, it is very childish to do those things. Like, it's horrific, but it is something that someone without deeper understanding or empathy does. And a lot of times kids kids do have empathy, but it, but you you have to kind of foster that and nurture that to really gain that. So in the beginning, it's like, you know, kids will retaliate against each other very, I'm trying to think of the word. What's the word I'm looking for? Easily? Yeah, they'll just retaliate without really thinking about it. So it's like, you took my truck, well, I'm going to hit you. And that really is what it feels like with Jane. It's like, well, you you did this and I don't like it, so I'm going to kill your bird. I'm taking your phone. Well, they do things without understanding what the consequences are. Yeah. So it's like, I think what she does to Blanche throughout the course of the film is a psychological mindfuck. I don't think that's what Jane is necessarily intending to do. I think she is retaliating as a child and it's all falling together that way. I don't um, think she's some criminal mastermind. No, no. And I don't I don't think that there's well, as we see when it starts to fall apart at the end, there is no bigger picture. No. She's just doing things that all happen to add up to something really bad. So yeah, but it starts with isolating Blanche and controlling her food. And she's giving her things that are inedible. She served her a parakeet. Later, she serves her a rat. It's just, it's meant to torment her. But when you look at it on the whole, it's just, it's a complete psychological warfare that's happening. And I don't know how long Blanche goes without food. I was wondering that too, because it feels pretty immediate uh like everything about like beyond obviously the flashbacks and after she gets hit and everything i feel like the all the entire events it just feels like it takes place in a couple of days um like it just seems like she starts with like the little tortures like you know feeding her her bird and all this horrible stuff and then i feel like once she 
meets Edwin and stuff. Like, I can't imagine this movie takes place longer than a week. So she serves her the parakeet for lunch, and mm-hmm. Blanche she doesn't eat it. right doesn't eat it, obviously. But then there's a scene where she brings her dinner, and Blanche can't bring herself to lift the lid on the tray, so she doesn't eat any dinner. And then next day we see her, and she goes, "You didn't bring my breakfast," and that's when Jane says, "Well, you didn't eat your din din, so I didn't bring you any breakfast." And we find out that the dinner was fine. Yeah. And Blanche says, "Well, if you don't bring me any food, you're starving me." And Jane basically tells her, well, no, you'd die if you starve. Yeah, she has no understanding of what she's doing. Then it's the next meal, I guess, lunch, where she gives her the rat. Yeah. And the laughter that Jane has that's just playing over this scene of Blanche freaking out, spinning in circles in her wheelchair. It's a disturbing scene, but, like, it really hits you. Both of these women are having major problems. At one point, and I'm not sure at what time this happens in the timeline, so just, I'm throwing it in there. But Blanche is finally coming to terms with the fact that Jane is not well. Now she has no way to get help. Elvira is gone. She's not coming back for a week. She only comes once a week. And she has no other contact. So her only hope is to write a letter on a piece of paper or a note and throw it in the neighbor's yard while Jane is away. Well, that's about the point where we are right now because Jane has decided it is time to revive her act. Baby Jane is coming back in the world. Yeah, and all of this was spurned because Blanche deciding to sell the house. Jane's fully snapped. (laughs) And she's like, no, I'm getting the band back together. And she goes into town to place an ad for a piano player who can... accompany her. Yes, since, you know, their dad is no longer around to do it. Mm -hmm. And while she's gone, Blanche, you know, she rolls out, she takes a look at the stairs. Can I, can I do it? Can I get down there to the phone? No. So she does. She writes this note saying to call this doctor, crumples it up in a ball, throws it out the window hoping that the neighbor lady who's working in her garden will find it. And she gets it in the yard somehow. Yeah, just as Jane pulls up and the neighbor lady comes over to talk to Jane and said, oh, do y'all want some more flowers? And I love this line that, I mean, she's just so rude. She said, well, I suppose if my sister wanted flowers, we could afford to buy them. But she's so clever because she sees the paper on the ground. She looks up at Blanche's window, mm-hmm. bends down and picks the paper up. And of course, so she sees the note, which Blanche had written on there under no circumstances, let my sister see the contents of this note. So you can guess how that goes over. And Blanche isn't sure if she, she has it or not. She just knows that it was there and then it wasn't there. So she doesn't know who got it, if Mrs. Bates got it or if Jane has it. So she goes in there and she toys with her. Mm-hmm. And she said, I don't think we need Elvira to come here anymore. Of course, Blanche's this is no no not part of the plan at all and she's saying oh but you get so tired and Jane's like oh yeah maybe I should go see a doctor what about that Dr. Shelby and of course Blanche you know you see the relief on her face she's like yes yes finally it's like what was his number oh yeah and she pulls the note out of her dress and tosses it at Blanche fades out of Blanche's eyes and I'm not sure if it's 
at this point or not, but she tells Blanche their dad bought the house. She's like, Daddy bought this house and I, with my money, so I paid for this house. Yeah, and she's true at all. She tells Blanche, you're not ever going to sell this house and you're not ever going to leave it. So that's reassuring. That's just what you want to hear when you're being held captive in your room. Jane's getting the band back together and trying to reclaim her childhood stardom. But she needs an accompanist, a piano player. And who should see the advertisement but one Mr. Edwin Flagg, who is a cash-strapped, overweight, possibly dependent on his mother, young person. And then even with Edwin, because um, that actor was a closeted homosexual, uh, during the uh, during the making of the film, nobody really knew, but it was just sort of one of those things that because of that, this also it kind of helps cement this movie's place um, in the LGBT community just because it has such a queer following because of that and just how campy the women are and everything. I didn't know that about him. I haven't done mm-hmm. much research into him, but I know that I've seen him in a few other things as well. Um, and always enjoyed his performances. I just know that he plays King Cut in the Adam West Batman series. It's like one of the most infamous scenes in the show where he makes Batman dance. And it's just the most 60s thing you'll ever see. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I have to, I'm going to have to look that up. That oh, yeah, show actually, it's surprisingly a decent show. It looks great on Blu-ray too. So if you have a chance, check it out. Sir, you know, be you. O-N-O is okay. his name. Oh, man, he was only 43 when he died. Oof. I just look at him as the equivalent of kind of like the deadbeat son because his mom comes in and she's, she's a so spunky sweet. little thing. She might not be sweet all the time, but she just comes in and she has this terrible Cockney accent. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. It's really, really bad. She calls him lovey and she said the doctor told her she can't go back to work because of her arthritis. Instead of him being like, oh, let me look for a job, mom. He's like, well, what are we going to do for money? He definitely is used to living off mom and she's definitely used to taking care of him because I think basically if he could be reinserted into the womb, she'd be cool with that. Yeah. She's that kind of mom. Because he even makes her call... Jane to answer the advertisement. He's like, pretend you're my secretary. He also kind of embodies a lot of Hollywood for me because it's faking it until you make it. So he isn't successful. He has nothing. He has really no experience. And he's having his mom call as a secretary to make himself seem much more important. Of course, the advertisement that Jane's put out has said, oh, this very established star is seeking an accompanist and all of these things. So he thinks that he is calling like a very very influential person so he needs to make himself seem as grand as possible and then the mom calls and is like oh I'm Mr. Flag's secretary Jane's like oh I have this very important piano player but she's she's very business about it too but she also she rolls her eyes when she says I'm Mr. Flag's secretary so I don't know if she sees through this or not maybe it's not seeing through it but she's she is playing the game if you will she's feeding into it whatever it is kind of reminds me about like everything that you hear about Hollywood and and some of what is true of people maybe knowing something isn't on the up and up but still playing along with it to see what they can get out of it and that's kind of what it reminded me of because that's what both of them do from the time that they meet like they're constantly one upping each other it's all about using so you can get what you want and so they set an appointment for him to come at four o'clock that day he does he shows up there she asks him if he wants tea and he's like oh well I love tea because as you could have guessed I'm British and she goes oh how nice for you (laughs) 
But let's also not jump over the fact that she has had a costume change and she is wearing a equivalent of a of a baby the baby Jane Hudson dress she was wearing in the beginning. It's a very young girl style dress, not a pinafore. That's not the kind of dress it was, but it's just this very lacy, frilly. Yeah, she has her hair curled. She's got hair ribbons in. She looks like a grown woman trying to look like a little girl. It's very creepy. But Edwin doesn't really seem to notice. He's too busy trying to put on airs. Yes. Basically. Because he tells her that, oh, his father was in show business and he's only interested in, like, composing and serious music. Yeah, and they're not listening to a thing the other person is saying. They're just waiting for their chance to speak. And sometimes not even waiting. Yeah. And all he does is he just keeps feeding into her ego. She Mm -hmm. starts singing and he tells her she has a a beautiful singing voice. Let's not gloss over this scene. Because, I mean, because she has to go up because Blanche is um, beeping on her little beeper. That's the other thing she has. This little buzzer she can buzz to get Jane's attention. Is that when she rips it out of the wall? Yes. Okay. So that, though, when Edwin comes in, Blanche wants to know who it is. And so she's buzzing Jane. Jane goes up and is like, it's not your business, right? Yeah, she tells her, you never wanted me to have any friends. You always took my friends away from me. And Blanche says, no, I want you to have friends. Maybe I can meet them too. And she's like, you only want them for yourself. Yeah. So this, this doesn't go well at all. Yeah. It's so childish the way that she responds. Like, you're just going to take them away from me. Yeah. So she rips the buzzer out of the wall and goes back downstairs. Edwin's at the piano playing through the music. This, to me, is probably, I don't know if it's the creepiest, but I think this is the definitive scene of this movie, is Betty Davis, you know, ringlets, lace, ribbons and all, as Jane, staring into this tiny little mirror she has that kind of looks like a, a dance practice area and the lights come up and we see from the mirror that it looks like she's on the stage again and it looks like the lights at the bottom are footlights she is just off key belting this song which is I've written a letter to daddy and she performs it exactly like we saw the little girl perform it in the prologue Mm-hmm. She okay. even does the dance that she would have done with her dad. Yeah, so that's really creepy. But yeah, I think when you think of this movie, this is the scene you think of. He is disturbed. He is uncomfortable. He's off put by it the way that he reacts to her singing is just like with utter disgust but yet he's still willing to play into this he's like oh I don't see how you could fail oh yeah reviving the act but he's like oh you sing so beautifully oh that's perfect and they finally get to the point where he says something about Delia who we find out is his mom but Jane goes oh I thought maybe you had a a wife or a lady and he's like oh no, nothing like that. And you can tell she's clearly pleased. Yeah. And he keeps feeding into that too. Gross. And it's like, he has, it's no, nothing sincere. It's all just a play to get more out of the situation. And I love the part where he asks her how much she's going to pay because she's truly shocked. She's like, pay? Never even crossed her mind that the person was going to need money. And so they make a deal and... She's going to pay him next Wednesday. So she's like, let's go out to celebrate. He's like, oh, but mother's, or Delia's expecting me for supper. So she's like, oh, well, let me take you home. Jane drives Edwin home. And while this is happening, Blanche sees this as an opportunity to try and get help. Right. Well, I believe this is also the time too, or maybe it was another time when Jane went out, that she sneaks into Jane's room and eats 
chocolate that she finds and also finds where Jane has been practicing Blanche's signature. With the voice impersonation and copying the signature, you're putting the pieces together that she's going to start trying to assume Blanche's identity to some extent in order to keep the money coming in, something like that. Blanche asked her, what would you do if something happened to me? There'd be no one to sign the checks. And she tells her that she's thought of that. So maybe I need to recant where I said she doesn't know everything she's doing because I think she maybe knows a little bit more. Maybe I'm going to recant what I said because I think she has a little bit more idea of what she's doing, the plan of what she's doing. She may not have it all completely thought out, but she at least knows how she's going to keep the money rolling in. Yeah, I don't know that she wants to kill Blanche, but I do think that she wants to she have wants control over power. her. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah, I don't remember what point she eats the chocolate. It may be at this point. And then... She's come out of her room to the staircase a couple times in the movie already. And so this is the time that she comes to the staircase. She looks down, but it feels like as a viewer, this is the now or never moment. So she begins climbing, holding on to the rail of the staircase, like slowly inching her way down. And it is an enormous task for her. And this is when you get a close up and there's just sweat pouring off of her. The tension is so high. It's it's truly an incredible scene, both from an acting and a filmmaking perspective. She finally gets down to the phone, and this is intercut with the scenes of Jane driving through the town. So we see that Jane pulls into the garage just as Blanche is able to make a phone call and talk to Dr. Shelby. She's clearly hysterical, and this doctor is just like, well, I don't know what we can do about this. Are you okay? I don't, I don't understand what's going on. And she's like, no, no, I need you to come here. And he's just not understanding in the least. He's not concerned about it at all. She tells him Jane is violent. Yeah, because he's asking, it's like, is she violent? Is she disturbed? Yes, yes, she's mentally disturbed. Yes, she's violent. And just like, like you said, just manic about it. And he basically tells her like, okay, well, I'm not understanding, so I'll come by. But the problem is, is Jane's heard all of this. So she heard Blanche refer to her as mentally disturbed and as violent and knows the doctor's coming. Yeah, so she like kicks Blanche in the head. No, she kicks her a butt. She just basically like keeps kicking her across the floor. When she's had her fill of that, she calls the doctor back and impersonates Blanche and says, oh, don't come my sister's going to another doctor. As the viewer, you realize it's just like split seconds that are making the difference because the doctor was heading out. The nurse was like, oh, I'll see if I can catch him. It was a split second when Blanche came down the stairs and got to the phone. It's like, you're just like, oh, there was just a little more time. So the tension and the urgency is just palpable. In the end, the worst case scenario happens. Jane finds out. Jane beats up Blanche and now Blanche is left alone in this house. No one is coming. Yes, except Elvira. Elvira. Elvira does show up. She had an extra day, and since she didn't do anything that week, she stopped by. Well, because did we go over the fact that Jane gave her paid a paid vacation day? Oh, I was able to clean up around the house. It's fine. So here, take some money. I know I was short the other day. I'm sorry. Just, you know, go enjoy your day. And so Elvira's like, okay, bye. But yeah, so she comes back the next day because she doesn't have anything to do, and she just wanted to check to see if anything needed to be done. And Jane's whole disposition towards Elvira has changed again. And she tells her, oh, we're not going to need you anymore. We're closing up the house and we're moving to the beach. You're fired. Just get out of here. So she leaves. Jane asks for her key and she says, oh, I forgot it at home. I'll have to bring it 
later. She leaves the house and you see Jane leaving the house as well. She's going on an errand and she's in the car. Jane drives by the bus stop and you see Elvira at the bus stop. The bus pulls up, Jane drives on, the bus pulls away and Elvira's still there and she goes back to the house. And she can't find Blanche anywhere. She's not answering. She's calling for her. The door to Blanche's room is locked. She can't find the key. So she gets a hammer and basically like a chisel thing and she's gonna take the hinges off the door so that she can get in there. I thought it was a screwdriver. Was it a chisel? Oh, I guess it's, yeah, it's a flathead screwdriver. Either way, it's splitting hairs. It's a very big screwdriver. Yes, so it might be a chisel. Jane gets home and and sees this and this is one of, this is my favorite moment of Elvira's in the movie because she is so defiant and strong and she's like what are you doing what have you done with Miss Blanche and Jane becomes a child caught with their hand in the cookie jar yeah she's like, like I didn't mean to hurt her and she's blocking the door but also kind of cowering against it and... yeah because Elvira fully looks like she is going to kick her ass which I kind of wish she had it. But she makes the mistake of setting the hammer down. Jane gives her the key and she opens the door and we see what kind of a mess Blanche is actually in. Her, her hands, hands are, are tied of... to her pull bar. Her mouth is taped. Yeah, she's not in a good way. Yeah, she looks awful. And she just starts screaming while she's looking at Elvira as this is happening and Elvira's going towards Blanche, but not quick enough. You see a hand reach for a ha- the hammer. Then you see Jane behind Elvira. Of course, Blanche is watching all of this happen. She's trying to warn Elvira. It doesn't work. Jane hits Elvira over the head and kills her. And also, we didn't mention the snitch neighbor lady. I mean, she didn't know she was snitching, but she was... So keep to your business. Yeah, she asked Jane for the name of her cleaning lady, and she said, oh, well, you'll have to call her because she's gone. And then neighbor lady says, oh, no, I just just saw her go in the house. It's like, she doesn't notice anything throughout the entire movie or offer any help except to get Elvira killed. Thanks, Mrs. Bates. Fucking white women. (laughs) Sorry. But this is also when Edwin finds out about Jane. His mom has the details. Gives him the lowdown about how she ran over her sister and she's an alcoholic and that she disappeared after the accident and they found her three days later in a hotel room with some man that she didn't even know. Yeah, and so as the viewer too, you're getting this information as well because you knew that Blanche was in the accident. You knew Jane was suspected of being behind it but you didn't know the aftermath and of course we also find out then a little bit more about Edwin as well because he tells his mom well why did that bother you isn't that how I was conceived so all this bull that he made up about his dad being a Shakespearean actor and things like that is not true So he's just as lovely as Jane is. The biggest problem for him is that his money hasn't shown up. Jane has not paid him. And he also, I guess, has a dinner date with her because he's going out and his mom says, you know, how late are you going to be? Or you're not going to be late. And he goes, who knows? Which is really creepy. Yeah, I don't know what he was planning, but. uh. But um, yeah, so he ends up showing up drunk to Jane's house, to Jane and Blanche's house. And the police pick him up and knock on the door so at first when Jane opens the door she just sees the police right yeah and she is drunk and she's looking at her old albums and talking about how people just didn't love her enough she could have been great but they just didn't love her enough I guess the part we kind of
kind of glossed over too was Jane is a drunk and she is buying a ton of liquor, copious amounts of liquor. Blanche has called called the liquor store and asked them to not sell her anymore. And so she, that's another time that she we see her impersonate Blanche to get her liquor order filled. She is just drunk completely, and she's talking to herself, saying, It wasn't her fault. Elvira made her do it. She didn't mean to, but... Edwin would be really upset if he found out about it, so he can't know. And and then lo yeah. and behold, yeah, the cops show up with a drunk Edwin. And so she lets him in, and this very drunken exchange begins between them. Where she gives him a baby Jane doll, thinks it's a wonderful gift, and they're going to have another drink. And Blanche is able to get her hand free. And she knocks over a table, and Edwin hears it, and he runs upstairs, and Jane's trying to keep him from going in there. He's he's a very large man, so he just moves her out of the way and goes in, and he sees it and just takes off running. Yeah, he doesn't try to help her or anything. He just leaves. And I think he notifies authorities, but he doesn't make any attempt to help Blanche. No, he doesn't. He tries to flag somebody down, but but then the next scene that we see him in, he's going into a liquor store. He doesn't do anything. He's just the worst type of person. Jane goes to Blanche and is saying, Blanche, you have to help me. I don't know what to do. Help me, Blanche. Clearly, completely delusional of the state that she's put Blanche in. Yeah, and she's like, let me go. Or what does Blanche say? And that, it's all fuzzy to me. She can't say too much because I don't know how long it's been since she had anything to drink. She looks really bad. Well, if you go by... By, you know, if Elvira comes once a week and she was paid for one week and she was coming back the next week. No, she came back before she was supposed to. So, I mean, probably at least three to four days. A person can go without water, I think, for three days. So maybe you're looking at that time frame. But yeah, she is starved, dehydrated, and about to die. Which is when Jane gets the great idea that they should go to the beach. And she has this this beautiful memory of when they used to go to the beach. And she would practice her dancing and people would just crowd around to watch her. Yeah, so they're going to go to the beach. And Blanche keeps telling her, she's like, you need to call someone. She's like, no, they're going to be mean to me. That time that you got in your accident. I don't want them to be mean to me. She slowly just keeps deteriorating more and more into being a child. Yeah, and she doesn't want the men to be mean to her. That is the basis why she won't call for help. She's got her wrapped up on a blanket on the beach and she's just having Jane is having a wonderful time running around and building sandcastles and at one point she looks over at Blanche and she goes you must be hot and takes the blanket off of her and they've been there for hours so they got there very early in the morning are there for hours and hours and people like the businesses start to open up that are on the beach and people are there and they're all around and nobody notices this woman who looks like she's about dead and this other woman who is dressed up like a little girl frolicking in the ocean no one notices a thing nope people in that time were like none of my business yeah and even the police show up they're at like the little snack shack there on the beach and they're talking about it and someone's like oh yeah there's an old oldsmobile parked down the way and i the keys are in it but i didn't want to move it and the cops are like oh i think we're looking for one of those or something like that and so no one has the wherewithal to look down literally 
feet in front of them and see these women, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. But as a viewer, you are watching this just screaming at them. And again, the urgency because you know that Blanche is dying. I do love the line where the cops jump up and run off and one of the other patrons at the little snack shack says what do you figure and the guy who works at the snack shack goes how do you figure cops <laughs> yeah this goes on at the beach for so long Blanche and Jane are there for so long completely unnoticed and it's just apparent that Blanche is withering away and every time and- I kept thinking she's dead she's dead now and then she'd she's move a little bit dead. Yeah. Like, okay, she's not dead yet, but she's almost dead. So they start having this conversation. And Blanche basically says, I have to tell you something. And Jane gets all upset. It's like, you only want to talk about bad things. I only want to talk about nice things. Blanche does confess to her. Jane didn't try to run her over. She tried to run Jane over because Jane had been so awful to her for so long. And they'd been at a party that night and Jane had gotten drunk and was imitating her and making people laugh at her. So she tried to run her over but she snapped her spine when she hit the gates and Jane was so drunk that she got scared and just ran off and so Blanche makes this confession to Jane and Jane just goes you mean all this time we could have been friends which is sad but also I think it would have taken a little bit more than just that that just it's crazy. It's it's crazy to me because basically it's like all the resentment and anger. She's like, oh, I didn't have to do all of that. We could have had a good relationship. It's such a weird statement to make. When they weren't friends before. So yeah, I don't know. But I guess in her snapped mental state, who knows? She thought that would make the difference. She decides she's like, I'm going to go get us some ice cream. And I love how she takes the ice cream without paying for it. You yeah, because she, she asks what kind of flavors they have. And she's like, oh, strawberry, two, two big strawberries. And she's just like a child, just so enthusiastic about this ice cream and yeah she takes it he's like hey that's you know this amount of money and she's like thanks and runs off because i assume that when she was a child they would have given baby jane free ice cream yeah she wouldn't have had any understanding of how payment worked Yeah, so, and since she's in that child mindset, the police see her, and they're saying, you know, Miss Hudson, where's your sister? We need to find your sister. It's very important. On cue, everybody on the beach runs over and surrounds her. Literally, as if on cue. I'm like, literally, you guys couldn't have done anything else. This is the first time you have to notice it. Yeah. But yeah, so now, Jane, in her snap child-like state, is surrounded by people on the beach, like she used to be as a child, and... And she could not be happier. And she does the only logical thing, which is to start dancing. Yep. So she has her two ice cream cones and she's just dancing for the people and smiling. And it's so distorted and warped because everyone around is just looking at her kind of in shock and horror and confusion. And she is living her best life. Oh, yeah. Like, this is probably the best day she's had since she was a child. Yeah, and then you see the police officers finally, finally notice Blanche on the beach. She's the one person who hasn't run over. Fully clothed woman just laying there unmoved 
moving on the beach. Rather on the beach like a corpse. At this point, she might be. Yeah, we don't know. Does Blanche die or not? Let us know so, what you think. So, yeah, so it ends. The movie fades to black with Jane on the beach surrounded by people dancing and Blanche surrounded by two police officers What and what looks to be like dead. Yeah, it's this really cool aerial shot so that you get to see all of it and the camera like slowly pulls away. It reveals all that's what's happening in like this little cluster of activity and then this just black stillness off to the side. So yeah, the way the police officers interact, I think she's dead because they, they check her and then they look at each other. But yeah, like I said, it's it's from far away so it's hard to say but she didn't look good she well she never moved so i i I don't know and i think that's up to the viewer because i don't i don't even know if it says in the book does it i don't know i haven't read the book me either but yeah so that's whatever happened to baby jane and it's like we really did our best to not spend a ton of time on every single thing because we wanted to get the whole episode recorded and you know ready for sarah's insights as well but there are so many little things we could have gone off like there are so many things that happen in in this movie and just little bits and pieces and tidbits that you can watch again and get more information and and pick up new things every single time. Well, and both of the women in this are just so talented that there's so many little moments they do that are just brilliant acting choices. Yeah. That, you know, we we could have spent an hour just talking about probably the first 30 minutes of the movie. Well, and let's talk about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford just a little bit, because I think what most people remember is just the the ongoing feud that they always had. And this movie, the fact that it was made is kind of a miracle. Just the on-set antics of these two petty women and the things that they would do to each other really, in a way, resembled the relationship of the sisters in the film. Well, they were constantly trying to one-up each other, but Joan Crawford wanted Betty Davis to do a movie with her for a long time. That was what they were looking for, was they were looking for... Joan Crawford was upset because, you know, she wasn't getting the roles, and at that time, it was even worse in Hollywood than it is now. Like, you know, you're over 40 and you're a woman well, you're should be dead. Joan Crawford was a pretty smart business person because she looked at it. She saw that this could be marketable. But right. Betty Davis, who was also equally smart, didn't but did not see the value in it and had to really be convinced because she hated Joan Crawford. And even the whole look of baby Jane was to one up Joan Crawford. Betty Davis was known in Hollywood as being the an actor who didn't care about how she looked. Like all the women always wanted to look perfect, but she was one of the first women that did like bruise makeup on her face in a scene where she was supposed to have been beaten up. And women didn't want to look like that. She learned how to do basically like bruise makeup and things like that. And people wanted to work with her because she was willing to have a more realistic appearance. So that was part of what it went into her look of baby Jane was just how can I make this so extreme so that I stand out from Joan Crawford yeah and but what's really funny is the wig she wore was Joan Crawford's that she wore on a movie early on in her career but neither one of them recognized it which like what how how could you why would you but yeah it was actually a Joan Crawford wig well and so here's a thing too what's fact and what's fiction because one thing I read said that she wore that wig purposely as a dig at Joan Crawford yes it just 
goes to show you how this intense, bitter rivalry played into the success of this film. This is why the film did so well, is everyone wanted to see the car crash of these two women finally doing a movie together. It continued on because Betty Davis was nominated for Best Actress for this movie. Joan Crawford was not. So Joan Crawford contacted every other actress nominated and said, if you're not going to be there, can I accept the award on your behalf? And so Betty Davis said that she lost the Oscar because Joan Crawford didn't support her. And Joan Crawford ended up going on stage to accept the Oscar for somebody else. So there was still a feud going on there. Yeah, so it just it just lives in infamy. And I mean, we have there's so many great stories that came out of it, like the wig things, like the two like those stories are different, but like equally intriguing. There's also the the story that because Joan Crawford was married to the CEO of Pepsi, Betty Davis had Coke machines installed everywhere on set. Just like little digs at each other or who would show up later? Who would be early? Just things like that. Ridiculous, petty ways to keep the power, to keep the control. I really want to watch that special feud. It's fabulous. Is about it, them. Didn't Ryan Murphy do that one? Yeah, Ryan Murphy did it. I did not finish it because my problem with Ryan Murphy series are that they start off incredibly strong. Like I think he is the king of a great pilot because his pilots are phenomenal and hook, line, sinker audiences every single time. But the follow-through of the entire series for me is where he falters. It just, he can't maintain that. I've watched, I believe, the first four episodes, and I'm not sure how many there are. What I watched was phenomenal. And that has Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange. I really want to watch that. And just, just very good. Each woman is just fabulous in her own right. I think there's something so fascinating about that era of Hollywood because it's just... It's crazy. Well, and here's a quote from the director of the movie, because apparently he fueled the rumors of the feud to try to make the movie more popular. Oh, yeah, and I think he fueled them between each other, too. But it says that it's proper to say that they really detested each other, but they behaved absolutely perfectly. Which, who knows if that's true? Well, they probably, you know, wanted to put a good face on for everybody else. Maybe they were just terrible to each other. We we won't know, because I think that's the thing about this movie, is the story of its making is as famous as the film. Because you never, you never will be able to look at this film and not separate it from the Betty Davis-Joan Crawford feud. But it's like, both women were phenomenal actors. Phenomenal actors. And it's like this really was a resurgence in their careers because at this point they were both aging stars and they weren't getting the work like they used to. And this really put them back on the map. So it really was kind of unheard of for two women of their ages to be doing something that was this successful at this point in their career. And yeah, um, for you know, two old school Hollywood Oscar winning actresses, they probably thought this was really beneath them. But I'm sure that they were just thrilled to discover that it was very much just yeah, just a, a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity to just kind of have that range for them. Oh, yeah. It spawned a new horror-thriller category about psychotic older women. It was called the psycho-bitty subgenre. <laughs> psycho-bitty subgenre should be the name of, of a band. Oh, my gosh, yes. And some other movies that are in that genre 
are whatever happened to Aunt Alice, whoever slew Auntie Rue, what's the matter with Helen, and then apparently there was an Italian comedy called Whatever Happened to Baby Toto. So basically just all whatever happened to this old lady. Yeah. <laughs> well, the old bitty sub, what was it called? The psycho bitty sub, sub genre? Uh, I know, it's, it's just such a, it's just ridiculous, but the entire point of the genre is just look at how old these ladies are. So it's like these women took control of the narrative of their career or the, and the trajectory of it because everyone wanted to put them out to pasture. As gross as that sounds, they did. They were just like, oh, you know, you've made your films. Now you can just like, you know, play the old, the, the grandma and the, and the aunt and or whatever. And that wasn't what they wanted. They still wanted to star in movie. Well, because they, they were still they had fantastic it. actors. Yeah. And I think this paved the way for older actors now because they didn't go quietly. They came back with a roar. And granted, you know, their careers took ups and downs and had peaks and lows. I don't know that either one of them ever did anything as good as this again in their career. They still, they took control of that and they didn't let someone tell them how they were going to go. This movie grossed 9 million worldwide at the box office and it had a budget of 980,000. So that's a huge return. Huge return. Yeah, this Uh, was a gigantic gigantic hit. The director also directed another movie that was supposed to star Davis and Crawford called Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, but another big feud, Joan Crawford apparently got sick during the filming and so they postponed filming and after a while they were like, okay, you either have to get better or we're recasting you. And they ended up having to recast her. So it's Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis. But it's also a super fun one. I I like that movie. Like, say what you will about the women. And I know they have their issues. And I know a lot has come out about them that's not good. But you can't ever say that they didn't do what they wanted. Oh, yeah. They were tough. They were strong and they were opinionated. At that time, that was really unheard of. And that's why they're so infamous. Baby Jane Hudson was ranked number 44 on the American Film Institute's list of the 50 best villains of American cinema. It was nominated for five Academy Awards and won one for best costume design for a black and white movie, which real fast, I'm going to talk about the costume designer because I think the costumes in this are really good. Oh, they're fantastic. Norma Cope was an American costume designer and I really liked that she usually was credited just with her first name, so just Norma. She won an Oscar for this. She also won an Oscar for Lady Sings the Blues, which I really want to see. Oh, Lady Day? Uh, the, the name of the movie is just Lady Sings the Blues. Oh, maybe she didn't win for that one. She was nominated for it. She was also nominated for Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Oh. So she got to work with this director and Betty Davis twice. And there wasn't a lot of information or about her but I thought I think she's a really good costume designer yeah so when you're watching this film pay attention to that and just appreciate the subtle really detailed choices that are made in the costumes because I think it really helps tell the story especially in Baby Jane's wardrobe and did you know that this movie had an X rating in the UK an X why I don't know it just said that the controversial plot it originally received an X rating ooh scandalous for those Brits and of course, for you, we're going to mention RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars okay. Season yeah. 2. Let, yes, let me talk about the, the majesty that is All-Star Season 2. So they had this really great challenge. RuPaul herself had the queens um, um, 
perform a challenge that have them pairing up with each other and remaking or, or adding on to the story of Hollywood classics. And one of those was what had happened to baby JJ. It was a continuation of whatever happened to baby Jane. Blanche and Jane Blanche survived. Blanche and Jane are now in a retirement home and Blanche has or Blanche and Jane are going to perform in this talent show because Jane wants them to and then Jane just ends up kicking Blanche out of her chair and doing the show by herself. But it's performed by Atlanta. Um, I'm sorry, Atlanta. It's performed by Alaska Thunderfuck 5000, who goes on to win All-Stars 2, and the incomparable Alyssa Edwards as Blanche. So Alaska played Baby Jane and was hysterically funny, but you knew she was going to be. As, but the thing is, is Alyssa Edwards as, as Blanche, Alyssa Edwards is not an actor. And they gave her this role and they're just like, oh yeah, she's just scared of Baby Jane. So she she just plays it as this person just like shaking and like cowering compulsively. And I think the best thing though is they're going to perform a song and the song they're going to perform is Camp Town Races. And the only line that Alyssa has is do-da, do-da. And she can't even do that. She says do-wa. So it's like Camp Town Races, sing this song. Do-wa, do-wa. And they have to do so many takes of this scene to get her to say do-da. She got eliminated that episode because it really wasn't great. But <laughs> it's just, it is fabulous. We have a link to it in the show notes. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, it's his hysterically funny what ha happened to baby jj but wait Lacey, behind your shoulder i see yes. someone lurking is <gasps> it baby carl yes whatever happened to baby carl no one can hear you hi. no come here hi baby carl hello so you want to give us your hot take on whatever happened to baby jane because i know you love this movie i love this movie because it is such a hot damn mess like this is literally when two rich white people have way too much damn time on their hands and live together and the thing is is like honestly i love y'all too but man if y'all two live together and y'all are older or hell maybe now I think that that would actually turn into y'all. I don't know who would be who, because the thing is, like, Lacey can always be a little kind of cray-cray, but she never has her explosions of cray-cray. She has her mini explosions. You can have your explosion to where I could just see Lacey asking for one too many bags of cheeses, and all of a sudden you're feeding her her pet binks on a plate or something. My pet binks. For those of you that don't know what a binks is, it's a cat. But basically, Carl's saying if we were stuck in quarantine together, this is what would happen. Hmm. Yeah. I think so. But no, uh, all joking aside, I think the movie serves such an amazing platform for two amazing actresses, especially, I'm sure, have y'all talked about how much they hated each other? No, Carl, what? Oh, shut up. Yeah. I wasn't sure if y'all got into this or Yes, not. we have talked about the feud. The actual feud. And... It was so obvious how much they hated each other, but they they used it, and I loved it. Yeah, that's that's the thing of using what you have and working with it. And I think also, can we give a shout out to the maid? Her what? name is Maddie Norman. We have already covered her. Okay, but she, and no, the no. maid's name's Elvira. Wait, the maid's name is Elvira? Yes. Oh, sorry. I I I I don't know. I thought you meant her real like actress name was Elvira. No, her name is Maddie Norman. She also taught African American studies at the University of Texas at Tyler. Oh fuck yeah! Awesome. No, she was the only damn same thing in that movie because literally, it's like, I love Blanche. She's awesome. But she can figure out some other damn ways to get some people's attention from upstairs. It's like, it is a set of stairs. The windows, they can't be that good. Throw something at them. Shout. Do something. Instead, she's just literally spends 30 seconds crying over a dead bird. And I'm like, you know what? 
that's okay. You know, obviously, if you're being served a dead bird by your crazy-ass sister, there is more to worry about than the bird on the plate. What I would do is I would literally see that dead bird, freak out for maybe two seconds, and then, like, ram my wheelchair, like, in a window or do something. Sorry, that sounds very problematic. No, but I understand what you're saying, because she could have gone to the window and yelled. She did one time, but she didn't yell. She was just like, I need... And then she just kind of wilted back into her chair. Also, how many times did you go down the stairs on your belly as a kid? Like, just go, you know know how you'd lay down and just, like, slide down the stairs? Like, if she had embraced her inner child, maybe this is ableist, because, you know, she is in a wheelchair. But I'm just wondering, could she have done that? I don't know if she had any feeling in her legs or not, but wouldn't she have been able to, like, just kind of drag herself down the stairs? I think it was done that way to build tension. Obviously, if she had just, like, slid down the stairs on her stomach like the movie would have had a different ending yeah she like was able to it just it would have been a different movie so i mean it was done away that way on purpose but i did think maybe she could have fought a little harder but i think she was in denial about how bad jane's state was i could see that as well have you all covered the whole movie yet yes we've covered the whole thing so i really really wonder if blanche lied to jane at the end just to like save jane like hopefully it's like one last grip at saving jane and even saving herself to where jane really did hit with a car or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Carl thought that maybe she told her that in an effort to soothe the savage beast, if you will. Oh, interesting theory. I'd never thought about that. I, I, because I, you know, I just, I showed this to my girlfriend last week and uh, she even said that she was like, is she lying to make her feel her? And I just assumed, I've never thought that. I always just assumed, no, she was the one driving um, and she's just telling the truth because it's a deathbed confession. I guess it's it is one of those things where it makes sense that um that Blanche has been so gracious their whole life and she seems so patient. Like the whole movie she just seems like such a sweet person and I guess it would make sense that she would have that demeanor because I feel like if if Jane really is the one that struck her and ruined her career, there's no way she would be this kind hearted and grace. She'd be just as bitter and horrible as Jane is. And so uh, I don't know. It does seem to make sense that she would be kind and patient with Jane, even though Jane's horrible to her just because she feels so guilty. That was literally like the first thing that I thought of when I saw that. I was like, why aren't you lying? But also, what do you think the beginning scene when the little girl's looking at the Jack in the Box crying and then the Jack in the Box starts crying? What do you think that's saying? Do you have any insight on that? You don't remember that happening, do you? I do not remember that happening. I'm not going to lie. Okay, well, there's that. Thank you, Carl. You're very welcome. Bye. Bye. Carl is now leaving the room. He's getting his phone, opening the door, and goodbye. That was a hot mess. (laughs) That's okay. That was a theory that I hadn't thought of because it is a question. She said that she snapped her spine in the accident but yet she crawled out of the car and put herself in front of the car so I don't know yeah. maybe I, it was, it's kind of far-fetched that that likely what happened but I wanted to say that because I knew that was a theory he had so I think that's something interesting to think about the reviews on this were mostly good yeah there were some people who didn't like it so the Hollywood reporter 
said in their October 31st review, ooh, Halloween. Spooky. Betty Davis and Joan Crawford headline Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, a tale of two sisters sharing a dilapidated mansion. Didn't look dilapidated to me. Famously, the two stars were none too keen on each other and their relationship is now the subject of an FX series feud. Okay, well that was added. Whatever else it may turn out to be, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is certainly one of the most fascinating and unusual cinema items of the year and one that will capture a huge amount of publicity and comment. Mm. Robert Aldrich's production for Warner Brothers is a lurid melodrama of hate, revenge, and murder, a high-class horror film in the Hitchcock vein with virtuoso performances from Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and moments both searing and poignant. Wow, that's excellent. This one from Variety says, teaming Betty Davis and Joan Crawford now seems like a veritable prerequisite to putting Henry Farrell's slight tale of terror on screen. Although the results heavily favor Davis and she earned the credit, it should be recognized that the plot of necessity allows her to run unfettered through all the stages of oncoming insanity. Crawford gives a quiet, remarkably fine interpretation of the crippled Blanche held in, emotion- held in emotionally by the nature and temperament of the role. Physically confined to a wheelchair and bed throughout the picture, she has to act from the inside and has her best scenes because she wisely underplays with Davis, with a maid, and those she plays alone. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely think out of the two like Betty Davis garnered more attention for her role I think Joan Crawford couldn't have been better I don't think anyone else could have done that role and I loved how she played it and I thought it was equally strong I just think in our media it tends to the big and loud performances are the ones that get the attention and subtler things tend to go by the wayside. There's one person that has said that acting if you're doing it right, nobody notices, Mm -hmm. which is kind of how I feel about Joan Crawford's performance is because it's so subtle and real, it does get overshadowed by Betty Davis, who I'm not saying that her performance isn't because I think it fits the character perfectly. It's just sometimes people are easier to notice, like you said, the bigger things. Now this is a review from the New York Times it said Joan Crawford and Betty Davis make a couple of formidable freaks in the new Robert Ulrich melodrama Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. But we're afraid this unique conjunction of the two one-time top-ranking stars in a story about two aging sisters who were once theatrical celebrities themselves does not afford either opportunity to do more than wear grotesque costumes, makeup, and look like witches and chew the scenery to shreds. Well, damn. So they didn't like it. Yeah, you could say that. So if you were to grade this movie... Um, we do like an A through F. Um, if you want to do plus or minus, feel free to. Um, wh- how would this grade for you? I love this movie. I would give it like an A minus or an A. Because uh, I, I feel like the first couple times I watched it, I thought that there was some pacing issues or something, or maybe I just wasn't paying attention fully or anything. But when I watched it recently, I was just completely entranced by it. Um, it just really is a solid film and it's I just love anything like kind of like Night of the Hunter like anything that you just can't really describe its genre with one word it just has so much going on and I just love how campy it is and so yeah I would give it an A. One part that like really speaks to you in this movie? Um, I do I do love I just think the shot of her kind of under a spotlight like they really made the light heavy handed on Jane and they gave her like she's all caked with white makeup and just when she's trying to sing the I've written a letter to daddy song it's there's just something so uncomfortable about it and so cringe but then you're 
it just seems at first you're just kind of embarrassed for her, but then you're like, oh, this is actually kind of terrifying. Like you could see the crazy in her eyes. Uh, I love that. And then I just think, especially if it really is that Blanche hit her, I just love the line at the end where she's like, are you saying all this time we could have been friends? Like there's just something so tragic about that. And it's just, it's like, it's like, I have a sister and I know that if something like that happened and like ruined our friendship, like and ruined any relationship we could have as adults, like it would just be so horrible to find out. I was going to ask you if you had any siblings because we are covering this um, because today is National Sibling Day. I noticed. I know I need to play something. (laughs) So you have a sister as well. Are you the older or the younger? I'm the youngest of three. So what grade would you give it? I think this movie is canon for American filmmaking. I think it's one of those things. It just defined, like you like you said, a whole subgenre. And it rewrote the careers of women later on. Because you didn't just have to be the mom or the grandmother or the elderly neighbor. You could still be a leading player as an older person. You weren't, you, your expiration was up just because as a woman because men led films well on into the ages that these women were but women didn't get that opportunity so so this literally changed the fate of actresses later on and we owe them a debt of gratitude for doing that so i was just thinking the other the only other character i can think of that's kind of similar to them is from sunset boulevard which was in 1950 this came out in 1962 but yeah, it's the only other character, like aging film star, that goes into a delusional downturn. Yeah, and even and it's kind of messed up that the only roles for older women that were a leading role as they got older were delusional aging starlet. Like they were typecast into that. Like if you could do that, cool. But what it did is now older women have different roles. It's like you see Helen Mirren doing different things in Judy Dench's career and Meryl Streep. And you see these older women playing different types of characters. So it was like these women got and other actresses got typecast into this type of role so that other women would have a chance to play more more different kinds of characters. If we didn't have movies like Sunset Boulevard and whatever happened to Baby Jane, I think it would have been a rockier road. But it's like, look at that. That was 12 years different. So in 12 years, those were the only two movies that we can really think of that had older leading actresses. Yeah, especially because Sunset Boulevard, it pretty much went head-to-head for the Oscars with All About Eve, which is another fantastic Betty Davis film. So, yeah, it's just crazy that it just, she, I mean, she was famous for other stuff before that, but that was really an important part of her career was, yeah, to get this Oscar nomination for an aging film star and then for this to kind of, you know, 12 years later kind of re- uh, reacquaint herself with that kind of role except way more extreme yeah I didn't even think about that that in All About Eve she because I, I look at that and I don't see her as you know age or old or anything um, I know it, it's crazy that they're like it's a scandal you're 40 and I'm like she's 40 she's amazing <laughs> I know I mean, obviously, she's older than the young woman, but I don't mm-hmm. look at her and go, oh, my gosh, how on earth yeah. is she getting parts? Why yeah, did you hire her? I know. It's like you look at women today's Hollywood. Like, I mean, obviously, like, Hollywood still has ageism problems, but, I mean, shoot, you look at Jennifer Lopez just did Hustlers, and she's 50-something, and she, she looks great. So it's just like the treatment of women of a certain age is just kind of all over the place. 
So, and now we see it a lot more. There should be more. It's not so odd to see a woman over the age of 30 or over the age of 40 or even 50 leading a movie. I think Maggie Smith and Judy Dench are in their 80s now? 90s? They're up there. I think Goldie Hawn and First Wives Club said there's only three roles for women. Babe, District Attorney, attorney and Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> Yeah, you'd have to be dirt old or or nothing. Um, I don't even think I actually gave a grade, but I would say this is an A. I kind of went off on a tangent, but this movie to me is definitive for so many reasons. It it is a huge part of American cinema and and film in general. I give it an A. Love it, love it, love it. And yeah, just for, for the story surrounding the movie and the movie itself. What would you recommend that somebody read or watch after this? Uh, I I usually say either um, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which is pretty similar in the genre, and it's also Betty Davis. And then um, Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice is really good. That's uh, that's Geraldine Page, and that one's ridiculous. And that's that's a little more comedic. Uh, Like Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte's more of a Southern Gothic, and then Aunt Alice is more like a black comedy. And then for anybody who's just really curious about the behind the scenes of the story, I would say... um, Feud, which I think it's Ryan Murphy he produced. It was just a little mini series on FX, and it's just a fascinating watch. Another one that is just for anyone that just loves ridiculous B movies, and they kind of go into it in Feud, but it's just kind of sad to think. But Joan Crawford's very last movie was a B horror movie called Trog, and it's literally about like a troglodyte, you know, caveman thing, and it's just a horrible costume and a bad mask. And, you know, because I think after this movie, after Baby Jane, she thought she was going to get more, like, she was going to get better roles and stronger roles, and it's just backfired on her. So her final movie before she died was just this terrible B movie where she would do her own makeup in the back of a van because they had no budget. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a pretty bad end. Yep. Trog. Oh, man. Never even mm-hmm. heard of that. Oh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> What I would suggest, um, I suggested Sunset Boulevard on our um, Mulholland Drive episode, but I mean, that's when I would suggest again. And then um, I'm going to be watching Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte for the first time. So I would encourage that as well. And then maybe reading the book, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. There's a scene in Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte that scared the pants off of mom. Really? I told her I was watching it and she's like, is that the one that has blah, blah, blah scene? I'm not going to give it away. I hadn't gotten to that part yet. So afterwards I went back to it. And I was like, yeah, that was in it. She was like, that scared me so bad when I first saw that movie. Oh she wouldn't God. watch it with me. Oh, well, you might have to tell me off mic what that is. Cause I don't know if I want to watch it. If mom got that scared. Well, you have to too remember that she saw it back when you've, if you've seen it, you're fine. Oh, well, okay. Never mind. <laughs> I can handle scary things. But what about you? What are your recommendations and what is your grade? Yes, my grade is an A. I love this movie so much. The performances alone, even even if like the rest of the movie was garbage, like the cinematography or the costumes or whatever, just because of the performances, it would still be an A. But it's not. The whole movie is really good. My recommendation is another Betty Davis movie. It's Dead Ringer from 1964, starring Betty Davis, Carl Malden, and Peter Lawford. It was directed by Paul Henreid from a screenplay by Oscar Millard and Albert Bike, and it was based on the story La Otra by 
Ryan James. It was a Mexican movie first, and this was the American remake. It is the working class twin sister of a callous, wealthy woman impulsively murders her out of revenge and assumes her identity. But impersonating her dead twin is more complicated and risky than she anticipated. It always is. They don't tell you that. That one was really fun because I got to see it when I went to Chicago for my friend's wedding last summer at the Music Box Theater. And when all this craziness is over, if you get a chance and you're in Chicago, go to the Music Box Theater because it is gorgeous. It's just an old-style movie theater. This one, they they were doing um, this screening and they show a lot of like older movies and stuff and also new releases, but it was this small theater. It was just so much fun. The audience was all about it. It was the perfect setting for a movie like this, but I also really enjoyed the movie. Well, awesome. That sounds like a good one. Any last words? Um, I think that being in quarantine right now, this is the perfect time to catch up on all of those movies that you've heard about, like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and things like that. So definitely let us know what you think and drop us a line. Yes, and stay safe out there. Wash your hands. We're recording a lot during this time because Lacey and I have both been furloughed. Yep, so a lot of time on our hands, a lot of time to watch movies and be creative. So that's the thing too. It's like if you've also been furloughed like both of us, don't feel the need to be productive. But if there's something you want to do, like Meryl Streep says, take your broken heart and turn it into art. So whatever that art is for you, go and do. Don't kill your sister's bird. Yeah, and don't kill your sister's bird. Don't be a dick. And thanks to Sarah for being our guest. Can't wait to hear your opinion. Yes, and thank you to our surprise guest, Carl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we haven't been in quarantine long at all. No, he's been really great. I always love getting his perspective. If people want to follow you on social media or um, look up any of your work, where would they go? Um, You can just go to my Instagram. It's just the spoke Sarah Truesdale. Um, and then I'm also a writer for a website called Goombastomp.com. And you can just check out. It's got a lot of video game news and things. I just specialize in film reviews. And you can just check all that out. I'm sorry, could you say that website again? Uh, Goombastomp.com. Okay, great. And we will link to that in the show notes as well so that people can find you. Thanks for being with us. This was super fun and can't wait to talk to you uh, about the next one. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, we'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Fems. Like us on Facebook at Fatal Fems and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Fatal underscore Fems. Have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemspodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode, because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.